Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 20th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Teachers' traditional Easter conferences continue today with each of the three main trade unions hearing from delegates who are finding it hard to make ends meet. Yesterday, the Minister for Education, Norma Foley, heard from primary school teachers, members of the INTO, who claim their wages are worth 7% less now than they were 10 months ago because of the cost of living. Government is very conscious of the need to support um, um, cost of living at this point in time and recognising that it's not just you know, a national issue, it's an international issue that's being impacted by global considerations, most notably, I suppose, really what's happening in Ukraine. So government is cognizant uh, of, of all that is happening. Teachers are due a 1% pay increase in October under the Building Momentum Agreement. Teachers point out, however, that when that deal was struck 16 months ago, inflation was running at 2%, while now it's forecast to exceed 6% this year. In terms of, um, you know, um, the the uh, the pay issue. Minister McGrath has been very clear in in acknowledging that a review of the building um, uh, momentum agreement um, will take place. It was most certainly negotiated in very different times, and preliminary discussions have already begun. And he has made it absolutely clear that uh, he is more than happy to continue. Um, those discussions and that there will be further discussion and negotiation going forward in relation to building momentum. Norma Foley, the Minister, was speaking to News Talk. Let's go to Killarney now where the INTO are meeting. Deirdre O'Connor is its Deputy General Secretary and on the line. Good morning, Deirdre, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Talk to me a little bit about building momentum, if you would. Uh, the Minister was left in no doubt yesterday that, as far as the INTO is concerned, this pay deal is no longer fit for purpose and that it will collapse if it's not improved upon quickly. What are your expectations? Well, we heard from um, our colleagues, our delegates yesterday, who were setting out their, you know, kind of the difficulties that they're experiencing. And I acknowledge these are difficulties that are across society, just in terms of the rising cost of living, uh, from, you know, the cost of diesel for teachers travelling kind of long distances to go to their schools, from rising rents and then rising costs across all of the, uh, across, across, you know, for energy prices, all, all of those things that everybody is, is familiar with. So um, in terms 
terms of the agreement that we reached under building momentum. Uh, um, as you said just there, it was negotiated 16 months ago and at that stage things looked very different. Inflation was under 2%. Um, so there is a, there was a review clause built into building momentum and uh, the public service trade unions have now triggered that uh, review and asked for a review to take account of the fact that inflation is rising and that people's pay packets just don't go as far. And we heard from our delegates here about the practical, uh, the practical difficulties that they're experiencing. So I think it is time and and we do welcome and acknowledge uh, that Minister McGrath, you know, kind of has entered discussions with public service trade unions uh, to, to look at the agreement. We want to see that agreement stabilised. We want to see that agreement uh, doing what it was meant to do, which is, you know, to ensure uh, good stability in the public service in public service pay until until the end of the agreement at the uh, at the end of this year. And uh, I think everybody can identify with what you're saying. Uh, as you say, everybody is feeling the pinch. The price of everything is going in just one direction, unfortunately. And for as long as uh, the war continues, uh, and the longer the war goes on, it could get a whole lot worse. Uh, this forecast of 6.5% from uh, the central bank may prove to be a conservative forecast, especially when you take into account how mortgage interest rates are going to increase towards uh, the end of the year. And there's a whole lot of uh, uncertainty uh, and I think a lot of people will be hoping that their pay will uh, increase in line with the rate of inflation but uh, have you any idea at this stage what that might mean? Well, what it, what it means to us is that uh, the the public service would the public services committee of the Irish Congress of Trade Trade Unions would get into negotiations with government, mm. um, as I said, in order to stabilise that agreement. You know, in order to make that 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 agreement fit for purpose by providing for increases before the before the end of the year. Okay, but are you talking about six and a half percent, or are you talking about thirteen percent, or have you got something in mind? No, I mean, we, well, we're not going to set out and start to negotiate on the on the on the mm. airwaves, but uh, you know, kind of, I mean, it is a matter of uh, trying to ensure that you know, kind of, our 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 members can you know, kind of, get to their places of work, that they can pay their energy bills, that they can pay their rent and sustain their mortgages, all of those things. Mm, yeah, or, or get a mortgage, uh, and uh, I think there was yeah. a particular concern for younger teachers. Well, I think this goes for younger workers across the economy and uh, the the increasing difficulty in the housing market, whether it is for younger workers paying uh, paying rent, and that's a particular, I mean, obviously places uh, that have high rent also need to have teachers, and teachers need to be able to pay rents in places like Dublin City and Galway City, um, and in the long term they need to be able to afford mortgages to, so that they can stay in those places. It's not an unreasonable expectation that, uh, you know, kind of a teacher uh, with a public service job would be able to pay her rent, uh, would be able to take out a mortgage after a reasonable period of time and settle down in an area and contribute to that area and that's you know kind of one of the things that's just out of reach of our members at the present time. Okay. It's a, an odd idea, isn't it? Uh, I, I think uh, to most people in this country, it would seem very peculiar uh, to think uh, that uh, a school teacher wouldn't be able to afford a mortgage, wouldn't be able to afford to buy their own home. Yes, absolutely, and that's that's the thing. If you know, kind of, and and you know, kind of, you look at uh, you know, primary school teachers at, at the bedrock of the heart of, of communities. They're working in every area in the country, and you know, kind of, we need to have them. Whether it's whether it's working in you know, kind of, on the south side of Dublin, we need to have those people there and contributing to those communities as well as we do in you know, country places, uh, you know, kind of more rural areas where housing might be more affordable. We need teachers everywhere. We need them to be able to afford uh, to, to afford to live in those places. Mm-hmm. Okay, speak to me about class sizes, if you would, Deirdre. We've some of uh, the biggest class sizes in Europe, don't we? 
we still have the, the, you know, kind of the minister came yesterday and she said we have class sizes of, of 23.3 in primary schools and all of your listeners who have children in schools will, will recognise those figures and they will know that, you know, kind of our children are sitting in classes that are, uh, you know, kind of at the top range in the Europe, of, of the European average. Now, we do acknowledge that this minister has, uh, and this government has decreased uh, that figure, you know, by one pupil per, on, on the schedule, one pupil less. But we want this minister to be very ambitious and we want her to um, utilise um, one of the things that, you know, kind of is, is very clear in primary schools, the falling demographics, uh, you know, kind of there'll be fewer pupils uh, and to utilise the teachers that would be left over to bring down class sizes once and for all to the European average. And there's an opportunity to do that now. Mm, it's uh, impossible to talk about this or almost anything uh, at this stage without talking about the war or the consequences of war. And in this case, we've an influx of people seeking refuge in this country. And that's going to put pressure on schools and class sizes too, isn't it? It is indeed. Um, you know, the minister said yesterday that uh, that she believes that there are about 2,000 pupils now have come into primary schools and that number is, is going to keep rising. And there's a great goodwill and, you know, kind of I think our delegates here yesterday spoke very clearly about, you know, kind of their desire to support, uh, to support those children from Ukraine who come in. We identified very clearly the supports that uh, they're going to need. They're going to need English language supports. They're also going to need emotional and psychological supports for the trauma that they've experienced um, and you know kind of some of those children who come will have special educational needs and those needs will also need to be met so you know kind of th- there's no doubt about the fact that um, that these children will get a warm welcome in schools in Ireland but we do need the government to step up and to provide the resources that are needed uh, to support those pupils when they're, when they're in our schools mm, It's like everything else so we don't even know what that means do we? Well, I suppose we, we and, you know, kind of delegates spoke here yesterday. Mm. We, a delegate spoke very very eloquently about her her, um, her experience of supporting children who had come from Somalia during the war, um, during the war times there. And she spoke about absolutely the need for um, psychological and counselling uh, supports from our uh, National um, Psychological Support Service, but for additional counselling. So those are the kind of supports that we're going to need. Obviously, um, English as an additional language supports. Uh, we need an expedited system for teachers who come from the Ukraine to be able to register as teachers so that they're available to um, become employed in our schools and to um, to, to, to help to, uh, to teach those uh, children that are coming also. Right. It's been a, a difficult couple of years uh, before we got to the war. Uh, the last crisis, if you can remember back to the pandemic and the impact that that had on schools and education on teachers and, of course, your children as well. I'm sure uh, there's been a reflection uh, on this last couple of years. There, there absolutely was and you know there were supports found and put into schools and, and the INTO very clearly you know back in May of 2020 we sat down we consulted with our members and we said well look what are we going to need now to support children um, or to keep our schools safe and to, to enable our schools to, to open in, in September of 2020 which we did um, many of those supports were things that were deficient in the system in any case so for example increased funding you know it shouldn't take a pandemic for 
for schools to get proper funding to clean their schools and to you know to keep them healthy um, we, we you know kind of we also got a system uh, a very good system put in to ensure that there were qualified teachers um, present in classes teaching in classes when, when teachers were out on COVID leave through a system of substitute supply panels um, and also we got um, as a support the um, one day for every teaching principal to carry out their administrative and their, their leadership duties in the schools and I suppose the reflection on COVID has been you know kind of that it was very difficult very hard work that there were necessary supports put into schools but now is not the time to take those supports out that those supports are required on an ongoing basis you know COVID hasn't gone away schools have had a very difficult year this year um, you know there's been a huge amount of absence both of pupils and of teachers and I think that's probably going to, to, to continue so um, I, I think the reflection here on COVID has been that it was very difficult the supports were put in place and those supports need to remain in place to keep our system to keep our system going Okay Deirdre thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to speak to us uh, this morning Deirdre O'Connor is the Deputy General Secretary and General Treasurer of the INTO that's uh, the Irish National Teachers Organisation Now we're going to go to New York and uh, the United Nations Security Council the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence was there yesterday at a special meeting of the Security Council and Simon Coveney uh, addressed members uh, and we're going to hear quite a a lot from his speech uh, through the programme today because it it was a a very strong speech uh, that the Minister gave particularly after his visit to the Ukraine last week and I I think uh, in many ways, he certainly impressed me but I I think in many ways uh, Minister Coveney would have reflected the thoughts and feelings of a, a lot of people in this country. As we meet this afternoon, we do so in the shadow of a renewed offensive by Russian forces on eastern Ukraine, in the shadow of further bloodshed, further scenes of killing, further disregard for civilian lives, and of continued blatant violations of the UN Charter. On Thursday of last week, I travelled to Kyiv. I did so because I wanted to see for myself the situation on the ground and to express Ireland's solidarity with Ukraine and its people. What I saw was profoundly shocking. During my visit, I went to Bucha. Until two months ago, it was a pleasant and vibrant town, a place where many of us around this table could have happily imagined living in. It now lies in ruins, with the stench of burning buildings and bodies in the air. Hundreds of family homes, shops and other civilian infrastructure, blackened, burnt, looted, damaged and in some cases completely destroyed. Family cars riddled with bullets, windshields smashed, bloodstains still evident. I've been around long enough to know the difference between truth and staged propaganda when I see it. There was nothing fabricated about what I witnessed. I stood at the edge of one of the mass graves where the work of carefully exhuming bodies continued. 503 civilians had been identified at that stage and just four soldiers. Men, women and children who were not combatants yet who appeared to have been deliberately killed in a brutal manner, some cases after being tortured. We have seen across Ukraine explosive weapons including prohibited cluster munitions being used in populated areas against civilian infrastructure. The toll of destruction 
of homes, hospitals and schools is testament to that. It does speak of an utter disregard by Russian forces for international humanitarian law and the protection of civilians. There is no spinning that reality away with disinformation. And we hope to bring you more of that very strong speech to the United Nations Security Council by Minister Simon Coveney later in the programme. But let's hear from another contributor now, another very strong uh, uh, contribution uh, to that meeting of uh, the Security Council. This is uh, the United Nations Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees, Kelly T. Clements. And if you think the idea of 20, 40, 100, maybe even 200,000 refugees arriving in this country it is a lot for us to contend with. Well then, how on earth is Hungary coping? I'm joining you tonight from Hungary, a country to which almost a half a million Ukrainians have fled, a fraction of the almost 5 million who have been forced to leave their country, in addition to the over 7 million who remain displaced inside Ukraine. The UN also estimates that there are 13 million more in the hardest hit areas, many unable to move and difficult to reach with aid safely. Earlier today, I was in the Czech Republic and before that in Austria. And the compassion and solidarity in these countries, along with others, continues to be unprecedented. Our fervent wish is that this will also extend to other refugees uprooted from their homes and who find themselves on this continent unable to return and in need of the same international protection and solidarity. Okay, that's uh, Kelly T. Clements, who's the UN's Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's go to Drogheda, where there's uh, concern uh, that people won't be able to do their driving test in the town. Let's speak uh, to Finnegale TD for Louth and East Meath, Fergus O'Dowd, and a very good morning to you. Thanks uh, for joining us. There's a, an interim contract in place that allows that to happen at the moment, uh, but you are concerned that that's not going to continue. Yeah, the first point is that it is an interim uh, contract and it is up in the in, in Marion Park. And the problem is uh, their lease on that runs out in a year. And they are committed to finding an alternative site, a permanent site in Drogheda, which is all very well. But this has been going on now for about four or five years. And while I welcome and acknowledge the excellent, the four driver testers they are in Drogheda and the throughput of people and the fact that they do overtime on Saturdays to try and reduce the waiting list, the fact is that no application is currently before the council uh, for a permanent centre, notwithstanding the fact that I believe there's an excellent centre, uh, proposed centre available in Mel. <clears throat> so that that's my concern, Michael. Right. Uh, well, you met with the RSA as well, didn't you? Uh, uh, and yeah, sorry, no, I met with them. I, I, I met actually mm. uh, with the Director of Driver Testing nationally. And I've met with them actually over a number of years, a number of years, mm. because it's been a bone of contention for many years that we didn't have any testing at all. And then we thankfully got this interim test centre, but we want a permanent one. But you were told uh, at this meeting with the RSA that that interim contract is not going to be extended and there's no sign of a permanent contract. Yeah, that, that's the problem now. Um, if I can just give a little bit of history. Initially, yeah. a site that I proposed was down beside the guard station that was shut down because of the high ramp as you would come out of it. Second one was shut down, the Arahalis, which I believe 
was an excellent top class location. Uh, they didn't proceed with that for whatever reason. That was the RSA decided. Uh, the third one, which was offered initially by the council, that's at the recycling centre up in Mel, and there's no problem with that site. There's no problem with the ownership. Obviously, a planning application would have to be made, but there seems to be, and this concerns me, an issue with the ramps in Mel. Uh, apparently there are issues with them. Uh, now, either the ramps meet the legal requirements or they don't. And if they don't, they shouldn't be there and they should be replaced with ones that do or the alternative. But it isn't, in my mind, good enough not to proceed with Mel yeah. because of ramps, you know, which are everywhere. They're in Marion Park as well. They're in every well, town. It makes sense to have them part of the driving test, would it not? Uh, what what, it what do you think so is the problem? Are they, too, yeah. are they too high? Are they too tall? Well, I don't know. They said there was engineering problems with them. So I met with them there last week. So I haven't an answer back from Loud County Council on that issue. But I do believe, and this is what I've suggested, is that the Road Safety Authority and the County Council, they've had an excellent relationship in many respects yeah. up to now. Uh, with the offer at that site, I thought that was the clincher, you know, okay. to the RSA. Well, it isn't the case as we speak. You're obviously not enthusiastic about the prospects of something happening anytime soon after that meeting with the RSA. If there isn't uh, some arrangement put in place. What will that mean for people who need to sit a, a driving test? They'd have to go to Dundalk or Navan, I take it, or Dublin for that matter. Uh, they would, yes. They would have to go elsewhere. Mm. No, but the Road Safety Authority did insist with me that they are definitely committed to a site. Uh, so what I've done since that meeting, we've contacted a number of businesses in the town that would have, I believe, other facilities that might be available or be made available. We'll also be getting in touch with the Chamber of Commerce. And indeed, anybody who's listening, the requirement are 8 to 12 parking spaces, a waiting room, an office, a staff room, and, uh, and a kitchen and a bathroom or toilet. So that's, you know, so like that's what we need. Mm. Now, that shouldn't be a zero-sum for Drogheda. The present waiting time now, it's a little bit complicated. You apply for your test and then you get an invitation uh, to apply. It's a bit convoluted, but the waiting time... <laughs> oh, no, that's, that sounds like <laughs> sounds like a hospital waiting list. <laughs> yeah, It does, it does. Yeah, you yeah. have to wait for your invitation to yeah. apply. You're going on a waiting apply. list to go on a waiting yeah. list, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, mm-hmm. Navin, it's five to eight weeks you'll have your test. Dundalk, seven to ten. And Drogheda at the moment is ten to thirteen. So while that's not above the national average, it's still longer, obviously, than that mm. and Dundalk. So if we do, if Drogheda were to lose, if there was no further or other interim site, you would have nowhere in Drogheda, which mm. would be a disgrace. So look, it, 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 sounds, like it sounds from the criterion that you laid out there that any empty unit in an industrial estate would suffice. Exactly. Exactly. And there must be a few of them knocking around. Well, we have written, we've written to a number of them, actually, about that very point. That's a very good point, Michael. Um, and that would be idea. The other thing is it can't be, you know, it, it can't be inaccessible. It must be near other roads so that you can test you and link into other type of roads. Rather, mm. you know, so, so, like, I mean, look, I, I don't believe it's impossible, but it has been a long battle. It's gone on for years, and it yeah. looks like... It'll go on for a little bit longer. But, you know, I think it's important that anybody who may have a site, if they get in touch with the Road Safety Authority or through you to me or whatever, I would start the county council. You know, it's, it's really important that we all work on this.
Okay. And it's so important for young people as well. Okay, yeah, well, it does sound like a, a bit of a, a dilemma. Thank you indeed uh, for highlighting it and for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Finnegal LTD for Loud and Eastmead, Fergus O'Dowd. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming to us. Geraldine in Drogheda listening about uh, the teachers. She says, I'm sick of teachers. I think they get more than a fair deal. They're off so much. Uh, I take it that's uh, the time off uh, that they have. How much more do they want uh, in these times that we're living through? Do they even think uh, of the nurses and what they've gone through over the past two years? Who gets two or three months paid holidays in the summer? And they're still giving out. They don't know how lucky they are. They are moaning and groaning and never stop. No empathy let alone sympathy for the teachers there. Uh, thanks uh, for expressing that uh, through our phone lines. Geraldine, thanks for your call for that matter. Peter, uh, I think uh, would get on very well, but Geraldine, they'd certainly have plenty to talk about. He says, Michael, teachers moaning again about pay. Without doubt, they're the best paid workers in Ireland. And for the time off that they get, no one comes near. Ask any teacher if they're badly done by, how would they like to be earning ten fifty an hour? Over 1 million of our citizens are paid 1200 a month rent, put food on the table and pay ESB and gas bills. I can tell you at the end of the month, there's not a spare penny left. Uh, he says uh, they and other civil servants are spoiled uh, and uh, they are the spoiled chosen few. Thank you indeed, Peter, for that. Uh, uh, Email from Theresa Riley yesterday says, uh, this is about farmers, because uh, we were talking about pig farmers, if you remember. She says, never blame the farmers for anything, Michael. If you lived where I do, you'd see the constant extreme damage that agricultural vehicles are causing to our country roads. It's criminal that they get away with uh, the destruction that's caused by their oversized monstrosities ripping up our roads, bouncing along and tearing out the margins. They're high speed with 20 to 40 plus tonnes loading is just terrifying at times and they don't care. Definitely a major accident waiting to happen. They also create highly dangerous road conditions by carrying mud and stones onto the roads and they never clean up their mess. I've never once seen an escort warning vehicle with them and they're supposed to have them with them at all times. The RSA have miserably failed to address restrictions of any kind for agricultural vehicles. They're a law unto themselves and never a word about the major contribution to road and climate damage or the from the millions of litres of diesel that they use every day. Thank you indeed, Teresa, for your email. I think everybody got out of the wrong side of the bed this morning, but uh, if that's the way you're feeling, that's the way you're feeling. What we want to know is how you're feeling, and thanks for getting in touch with us. Michael Reed on LMFM. Think the world of your children, but if you want to do the best possible for your children, you're being asked to take a look at your parenting and ask yourself, is your parenting online as good as it is offline? Let's speak to Alex Cooney, who's uh, the CEO of Cyber Safe Kids. A very good morning to you, Alex, and thank you indeed for joining us. To tell us about your campaign, which is the same rules apply, or they should uh, apply online and offline. Tell us a little bit more, if you would. Yes, thank you. Yeah, it, it, the should is a good word because what we're trying to highlight with this same rules apply campaign is the fact that we do uh, so much for our children to prepare them for their future lives when they're young. So we teach them to ride a bike and we teach them to cross the road safely or to swim. And this is all in preparation for their future lives to, to be able to make the most of the opportunities that are available to them, but also mitigating against risk involved. And what we're trying to say to parents and caregivers um, with our new campaign is that 
we need to apply that same parenting approach to our children's online lives. You know, they, they need our support and their guidance, and they need to be prepared as well for, for, for that online journey. Mm. So this is, we've, we've launched a, a short video. The, the campaign is sponsored by Accenture Ireland, and we're doing it in association with the National Youth Council of Ireland because we're really trying to get this message out um, across the country to, to all parents and caregivers that it's really a great opportunity to stop and think about how well we're preparing our children for, for their online journey. All right, because they're online uh, and a lot of parents will tell you, I don't know what they're doing online, but they seem to be on their phones all day and maybe that's the starting point. Exactly, exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's a really asking yourself questions, you know, do I know what they're doing online? Do I know where they're going, on, you know, and, and who they're talking to? And have we had conversations about it? And, you know, we know that children are super enthusiastic about being online and, and you know, accessing all the apps and games and watching the videos and, and mm. so on. And, you know, that, and that enthusiasm is great and, and, and there's undeniable opportunities for them. And I think we saw that certainly through the COVID lockdowns. But we also need to be aware that there are risks for children online and they are often being treated as adults in, in those online environments. Unless they're specifically in a child-orientated environment, they're, you know, they're going to be treated as adults. So we need to be really aware of these things and as parents kind of be mindful of, of the apps and games that they want to, to be on and check them out first, have the conversations, keep an eye on what they're doing. So especially for younger kids, we're encouraging parents to have them in family spaces when they're on their devices. You mm. can just keep an eye. It's not about sitting down next to them 24 hours a day. Mm. It's, it's about being able to check in. And, you know, when they're in their bedrooms with the door shut and the headsets on, you're, you know, as a parent, you're really excluded from, from what they're doing online. So it's, it's really encouraging that engagement, those conversations, those ground rules and that oversight. Yeah, and I take it you're not talking necessarily about the extreme examples or not just about uh, extreme examples where children could end up being abducted after meeting strangers online. Uh, but uh, as you said, age-appropriate things uh, so that they're looking or reading uh, things that are appropriate for their age and they're, they're not growing up too quickly. Right. I mean, we're not going to be able to prevent them from seeing all the bad things online, unfortunately. I wish I could say that we could, but we can do a lot to mitigate against it. So, for example, if we're using parental controls, if we're using safe search filters to, to kind of filter out some of the more adult content, you know, there are things that we can do with checking in with them, checking browser history and making it open, transparent, not behind their backs. You know, and having that agreement in, put in place when you first give them a device. You know, I am going to be checking in with you on this. I'm going to be checking the device. I won't yeah. do it behind your back, but this is going to be open. Yeah, so those are everyday things. And, of course, what we're really trying to do is protect children from kind of the more negative experiences uh, of being online. So, yeah, contact with strangers, exposure to, to inappropriate content, um, uh, or extreme content in some cases, negative impact on health and well-being. You know, we, we do see a, a lot of kids telling us that they have their devices in the bedroom that night and it's interrupting their sleep patterns. And I think, you know, we do need to really think about how we manage the, 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 the opportunity but also the risks involved as parents. Yeah, you hear of kids up all night, not yeah. able to stay awake in school the next day. Uh, and yeah. uh, God knows, uh, they may have been playing games, innocent games, but it, it, that in itself is a danger, isn't it? The thing is with games, I mean, there's some mm. big, you know, kids can have great fun and yeah. some of them are really educational and you know, encouraging mm. problem-solving skills and, you know, uh, critical thinking skills and, 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 and all of those things. And that's great. But yeah, we don't want them interrupting their, their, their sleep. Children it's, need sleep. They're, they're grounded at the right time at three o'clock in the morning. It's a different yeah. thing, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And also mm. then we, we know from our own data, because we, we gather data over the course mm. of the year and then we publish it in, a, in an annual report. But what we're seeing is that there are always a proportion of children who tell us that they're gaming with people that they don't know. Mm. We know that they're children with friends and followers on their social media accounts that they don't know. And often, in the most cases, these are friends of friends, so especially in the social media settings. Like these are friends of friends, which seem to children safer than a complete stranger. But actually, it is still, if you don't know them offline, if you don't know them in, yep. your, in your offline life, then they are a stranger, even if they're a friend of a friend. So I think we've, we've got to work a lot harder as a society to to protect children, prepare children. And I'm not putting it all on parents. I, mm. I totally understand that this is a societal issue. So, But our campaign is, is, is directed at parents and we want to support them. So we've, we've got this campaign video, but we've also got a support resource to encourage conversations at home. And the idea is that we're going to develop it. So we'll hopefully produce another video. We'll produce um, a more substantial guide for parents in the, in the future. Okay. But, yeah, it, but mm. we do recognize that industry has a role to play and we are certainly working very hard to ensure that there is accountability at that level as well and that there is um, pop, there are proper regulation in place and that they are held accountable for the harmful content that they host. So that is what we're also doing, but this campaign is focused on support. Very good. Cyber Safe Kids, same rules apply if people want to see that video or get more information. Alex, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Alex Cooney is uh, the CEO of Cyber Safe Kids. Now, as uh, you heard earlier on, if you were listening, uh, the Minister for Foreign Affairs and to defend Simon Coveney addressed the United Nations Security Council on the war in Ukraine. It's a complicated situation from an Irish point of view, obviously, but this is what the Minister has been saying uh, to the rest of the world uh, about what Ireland can and what Ireland cannot do. Madam President, Ireland is a small country. We are not a member of any military alliance and we are certainly no superpower. But we fought to take a seat at this table and we have earned the right to be here. We did so because we fundamentally believe that despite all the well-documented flaws of this council, and there are many, it is the ultimate arbiter on matters of war and peace. This group of 15 countries has been entrusted with protecting the weak and the innocent withholding aggressors to account, no matter how powerful they are. The only weapons that we have are diplomacy, dialogue, facts, collective leadership, and most importantly, a shared commitment to international law and the UN Charter. Do we really have to keep repeating around this table that innocent civilians are never legitimate targets of war? that all parties to conflict must comply with international humanitarian law, including the prohibitions against indiscriminate and disproportionate attacks, and the obligation, the obligation to distinguish between civilians and combatants. These obligations are not optional, not least for those privileged enough to be seated around this table who should be leading by example. And we hope to hear more of that address to the United Nations Security Council from the Minister for Foreign Affairs and Defence, Simon Coveney, later in the programme. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, a survey of uh, some 750 respondents at least who uh, live with diabetes, parents and carers and healthcare professionals has shown huge support for flash glucose technology. Uh, you may be aware of this if you have diabetes and God knows a lot of people do, uh, but uh, this survey found that 92% of healthcare professionals and 98% of people who have diabetes are of the opinion that FGM, as it's called, should be reimbursed for anyone who has diabetes based on their clinical need. Let's hear a little bit more about this. Dr. Kate Gajewski is Clinical Manager for Advocacy and Research with Diabetes Ireland. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning, Kate. Uh, as I say, people with diabetes may be familiar with this, some more than others, because it is available to people who have type 1 diabetes, uh, or at least they're reimbursed if they're using it. Is that right? Uh, good morning, Michael. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me here. Yes, so Freestyle Libre, so flash glucose monitoring, uh, is available for people with type 1 diabetes who are under 21. So the issue that we see is that it is age-restricted. So only children with diabetes and adolescents and young adults have a right to use this, uh, this technology. So this is why we conducted the survey. This is why we were also asked by the National, uh, um, National uh, Pharmacoepidemiological Unit to, uh, to, to submit our uh, patient submission evidence. And this is why we organized this survey and we were absolutely overwhelmed with the response from all people living with diabetes, mm. their healthcare professionals, diabetes teams. And this is what we are just now talking about, about the results of this survey. Okay, tell us, tell, tell, tell us a little bit more about what this does. People would be familiar with finger pricking and seeing how sugar levels are. How does this work in, in that sense? So when you finger prick, uh, it means that you have to take your blood sugar meter, you have to, um, you have to cut your finger, you have to get this blood drop, and then you have to check what is happening with your body, what's your blood glucose level. And uh, with the freestyle Libre sensor, with flash glucose monitoring, or with the continuous glucose monitoring, you have a sensor that you wore on your arm, and then you just take your device, it might be or even, it might be a mobile phone, it might be a separate device, and you just uh, touch it, you just connect it to the, this, to the sensor, and then the result appears on your monitor. Uh, it means that it's a lot more um, it is a lot more comfortable to take the test that's one thing but what it also does it also shows your blood glucose results on the graph so you can see the context of where this blood glucose level is coming from whether it is falling whether it is rising what will happen next mm. so having flash glucose monitoring or having continuous glucose monitoring mm. is like uh, having your eyes wide open having having your lights turn on whereas if you finger prick you only see a point in day every couple of right, times that you test. So it, that's the big difference. Yeah, so, so it's continuous. I think that's the word you use. So, you, so you're monitoring uh, your levels all of the time. Yes, so it, measures, so it measures your glucose levels all the time. With flash glucose monitoring, you have to take your device and you have to attach it to your sensor so it will show you what is happening, mm. whereas with continuous glucose monitoring, it gives you the alarms. Uh, so it, it, it measures continuously. So there is a small, tiny little difference, but, uh, but overall it shows exactly the same information. So the blood glucose level on the graph 
showing you the context what is happening and what can happen next, which is a lot more than um, than, than standard finger pricking. So that's why this technology is now advised to anyone using insulin, to anyone who um, who uh, who has this clinical need. And here in Ireland, we unfortunately don't have this device, flash glucose monitoring reimbursed for those over 21 with the clinical need as well. Okay. What's it cost? 120 euro a month or so? Yes, so if you if you have to self-fund, and many people in Ireland do that because they see the benefits themselves, uh, they usually have to pay at least 120 euro a month uh, to use it. And that was actually one of the findings from our survey, that for many it's a real huge burden, uh, financial burden. Many have to give up their TV package or they have to, for example, uh, purchase the, the, the device for a month and then to have one or two months break because they have to pay rent, they have to pay college fees, etc., etc. So it is a burden. And here in Ireland, we are actually very lucky that we have the long-term illness scheme, which, um, which uh, allows us to not to pay for the medicines uh, that we use to treat our diabetes. But unfortunately, Freestyle Libre is only available for those under 21. And this is an issue that we see, ongoing issue that we fight for for the last five years. Okay, well, thank you for telling us about it. I'm sure there's a lot of people with uh, diabetes who'd be very interested uh, in that and it's being made available to them for that matter. And thanks, as I say, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. That's uh, Dr. Kate Gajewska, who's Clinical Manager for Advocacy and Research with Diabetes Ireland. Now, let me bring you some of the comments coming to us. Uh, Mareida is in Drogheda and she says it's commonplace or it's becoming common practice uh, for some people to knock teachers, accusing them of having cushy numbers uh, and so on. Uh, She says, I don't think she likes the idea of uh, people just having a, a go at teachers. She says, most teachers I know work extremely hard and they earn every penny that they get, in my opinion. It's a hugely important job. They're educating our children and it's in all of our interests to attract good quality, quality people to the profession. Um, Raid goes on to say they should have a salary that allows them to have a good standard of living and at the very least be able to afford to buy a house. It's uh, an amazing thing, isn't it? And really a sign of the way the country has changed in so many ways uh, that when you're talking about the idea of school teachers not being able to afford a house. Uh, I think that would have been unthinkable not so long ago. Eamon and Dunlear, thank you for your text. Eamon says, normally I'd be against the teachers, but by God, they've the patience of saints. When I was young and you answered back to a teacher, all hell would break out. Nowadays, the kids have little or no manners, overcrowded classrooms, and that situation is only going to get worse with the Ukrainians. Uh, says Eamon. Thank you uh, for that. Uh, Frank, uh, <laughs> uh, Frank heard Teresa's email. Uh, Teresa, I, I, I'm sure you're listening. Uh, Frank wants to know if you're anti-farmer, uh, do you think that when our roads were snowed up in the winter uh, and blocked up with snow, uh, that they cleaned themselves? Or do you realise that it was the farmers that unblocked the roads? No farmers, no food, Teresa, Frank says. Uh, and don't shoot the messenger. I'm just passing on the message, uh, Teresa. Uh, and that goes both ways, by the way, Frank. Uh, I don't think Frank was very impressed with Teresa's email at all. Now, we're going to go back uh, 
to the United Nations Security Council and uh, we're going to hear a little bit more about uh, the ongoing consequence of her war. Five million refugees and counting at this stage. Uh, the scale of this refugee crisis truly is mind-boggling. And while the sheer scale and speed of displacement is immense, we must not lose sight of what these figures mean. Our teams on the ground continue to be confronted by the same scenes and shared stories. Women, children, and the aged have left their homes, their lives, their sons, their fathers, and husbands. Just this morning in Prague, I met Lupa, a 25-year-old from Odessa. Like so many others, she was forced to leave behind her family in Ukraine. Her father, a military reservist, remains there with her mother. Her grandmother, who lives in Meliupol, just a few hours west of Mariupol, has been completely unreachable since the war began two months ago. Each one of the millions of displaced are forced to make impossible, heartbreaking decisions and have left everything, almost everything, they hold dear. But we have also seen consistently remarkable acts of humanity. Apartment and office buildings, windows and balconies, street lamps on every corner, covered with messages of support. Local authorities, communities and individuals rallying to provide what they can, food and medicine, transportation and a place to sleep. I saw this in Prague today, tremendous solidarity and support. Thanks to the commitment of concerned states, borders have been kept open, those seeking safety are given access to protection and aid, and we call on that to continue in a non-discriminatory manner for all people in need. This inspiring response is surpassed only by the strength and composure of refugees themselves, who continue to exude both courage and resilience as they describe their flight to safety, bravely talking about being separated from their families, fearful the war will pursue them. And most of all, they emphasize their hope for peace so that they can return home as soon as possible. Right, that's uh, Kelly T. Clemens, who's uh, the Deputy High Commissioner for Refugees with uh, the United Nations. Of course, the reason people... In Ukraine, the vast majority of those on the move are women and children. And the <laughs> okay. risks of gender-based violence, My trafficking... apologies, I'll just stop that there. Uh, the reason people are leaving uh, Ukraine, uh, I don't think uh, any of us uh, need reminding, is uh, because of uh, the terrible onslaught. Uh, and uh, the killing of uh, civilians, tens of thousands, it would seem, at this stage. Uh, we're going to hear a different perspective on this. Uh, this is uh, the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, who was uh, speaking uh, to India today, yesterday, about the killing of civilians. It's, uh, always, it's always terrible when uh, uh, military activities uh, bring damage to the civilians and to civilian sector, to civilian infrastructure. As I said, when people who have been killing Russian, ethnic Russians, citizens of Ukraine in the East for eight years, uh, without any uh, TV representatives, uh, be it Asian, be it African, be it Latin American, be it European, be it the United States, paying any attention to this, when the Russian journalists have been working on the Republican line of contact side 24-7 showing the atrocities committed by the Ukrainian neo-nazists and Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, during those years, uh, no single uh, foreign journalist cared to come to the other part of this line of contact to see uh, what was going on there. 
and the statistics available through Organization of the Security and Cooperation in Europe indicated that the damage afflicted to the civilians and to the civilian infrastructure on the side of the republics, proclaimed republics, was five times more and bigger than the same uh, figure uh, for, the, for the territory controlled by the Ukrainian government. This is not to say that uh, we can, you know, just ignore the victims and the damage uh, to the civilian infrastructure. But once again, I want, I want to emphasize a very important thing. This outcry started only when the Russians decided to protect Russians who are citizens of Ukraine and who were absolutely discriminated. There was, no, there was no outcry when the city of Raqqa, for example, in Syria, was leveled with dozens and hundreds of corpses lying there unattended for weeks and weeks. The American military never had any scruples about achieving their military goals, be it in Syria, be it in Iraq, be it uh, in Afghanistan, for that matter. And uh, this is a tragedy when people die. It is kind of hard to listen to, isn't it? Uh, that's uh, the Russian foreign minister explaining that the reason civilians are being killed is because Russia is defending Russians from Ukrainian attacks on civilians. Uh, that's uh, Sergei Lavrov who was uh, speaking to India Today yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now, uh, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins, uh, National Bus and Rail Union is renewing its call for the government to set up a dedicated guarded division on transport uh, that uh, the buses and the trains would be policed. In other words, let's talk uh, to Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD for Mead East and Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us, Darren O'Rourke. Do you support the NBRU in this call? We do, Michael, um, and and thanks for for discussing this um, because I think it is a a very significant issue. Um, Sinn Féin, um, my colleague Martin Kenny, brought forward a proposal at our last Ardesh in line with the calls from the NBRU, um, recognising, I suppose, a a number of things, um, a significant increase in the, the instances of of antisocial behaviour and violence and intimidation on the public transport network, a significant increase in spend um, on private security in relation to it, um, you know, the calls from unions and, and others for, for a different approach. Um, and I think it's important to say, Michael, all of this at a time when we want to significantly increase the amount of people who uh, avail of public transport. Um, and all of the evidence is that the increase in incidences are actually a deterrent for people, unsurprisingly. Say that again, the increase in incidents are a deterrent? Are the terrain oh, for, for you for using the bus? Use public, exactly for, yeah, for so, using so. the bus and the train. I get you, of course. Yeah, well, nobody. I mean, uh, the uh, NBRU representative Sean Yates. Uh, people would have heard him in the bulletin talking about uh, some fellow getting the head punched off him on a bus to Galway over the weekend. Nobody wants that. 
Yeah, that, that, that's it, Michael. And, and look, it, it is, and, and I suppose as a transport spokesperson, I think of it from the perspective of the passengers, but also from the drivers and the NBR. You do a, a very good job in highlighting mm. the, the, the effect on, on their drivers. We, we at the Transport Committee, I think this is an important perspective we heard from uh, the female perspective. There's been studies d- done looking at uh, the influence of these types of events on, on, um, on women using public transport. Transport. And, and that study found that 55% of women uh, won't use public transport at night, for example. 34% have indicated that they uh, felt an insecurity and that insecurity prevented them from using uh, public transport. And one in three women have seen or experienced um, some form of violence or harassment on public transport. So that is a, yeah. a, a major concern. We it's know ridiculous. That it's just ridiculous that women are afraid to get the bus at night. Absolutely. Uh, it makes no sense. But, but was it always like this? Uh, I mean, uh, was it like this 10 years ago or 20 years ago or has it uh, always been like this uh, and people are just bringing attention to it? So, so there is, um, so, so it is an increasing phenomenon, uh, certainly in terms of the the incidences, the reported incidences, and um, uh, they, they, they spend uh, from uh, on private security to to, to detect and, and deter. Um, we know that you know, in, in fairness, uh, you know, this this has been raised repeatedly, and we know that it's not the case that there is no response um, when we raise it with the Minister for Justice and the Minister for Transport. They point to a range of initiatives that are, that are uh, taking place. There's Operation Saul, Operation Twin Track, both of them in the, the Dublin metropolitan region. They talk about the staff that the Lewis have, 50 uh, private security staff. Irish Rail have 20 security teams. They talk about the bus services having very significant CCTV. But we know those, uh, serv- those uh, um, operations and uh, facilities are in place, but that we have a, a significantly increasing amount of, of anti social behaviour and crimes, mm. you know. So, 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 women, so, so women are right. Anybody who's afraid to get on a bus or a train, uh, and particularly at night, they're right to be afraid uh, because it's dangerous, obviously. It, it is increasing, uh, Michael, and, and I think that's why, why it's important that we have a comprehensive uh, response from, from government. And, and uh, it's, it's a matter of deterrent, as far as I'm concerned, it's about prevention, uh, about nipping, nipping it in the bud. It's about people um, uh, having uh, the, expect, the reasonable expectation that when they get on a, a, a public transport service that there will be... Uh, uh, either private security, but our preference is for a member of Angarda Siakana to be on that uh, service or to uh, to spot check on that service um, to, to act as a, uh, as a deterrent. Mm. We believe that there isn't sufficient deterrent uh, there at the Ministry. And, and there are real limitations. You know, there's a benefit to, to the work being done by Angarda Siakana because private security firms with the best will in the world um, are limited in their powers. Uh, um, they don't have, have powers of prosecution, for example, and all of the work that they do will be handed over to Angarda Siakana uh, at the end of the day if, 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 if it is a case of, of uh, a matter that is, be, is to be pursued. So there is a benefit, and mm. I think that's why the NBRU and others are calling for a dedicated unit uh, uh, within Angarda uh, And what, what, what would that mean? Uh, what 
what would you envisage would be involved in a, a dedicated unit? How many guards would you be talking about? What kind of checks? How frequently uh, would it be that you could travel maybe for a month every day uh, on the trains or on the buses and never come across a, a guard or you might see one uh, every day for that matter? How, how would it work in reality? Yeah. So again, that would be, and, and let's be clear, you know, there there, there are resourcing constraints and that, that will be a consideration in all of this. So, so it, that depends, um, the answer to the questions you've asked there depends on the level of resourcing that the Minister and the Department are, are committed to, to providing for, for it. Um, and that, I think, is the, is the real stumbling block we, we, we have here. We would raise the, the point, of course, that there is very significant spend. For example, Irish Rail have uh, spent over €5 million Euros last year uh, on private, private security that funding could be, mm. for example, spent within the, the Gardaí Gun. But uh, uh, we've discussed this for, with the NBRU, for example. They talk about you know a different type of service on the rail service compared to the public bus service. You can imagine how, yeah. how there might be different operations there. But um, I think you know it, it would be a case of ensuring uh, a level of visibility that was a deterrent. I don't think it would be enough. The same as the speed cameras on the on the roads um, or, or a guard checkpoint. But you are talking about a dedicated unit where you'd have members of Angarda who would work on uh, the buses and uh, the trains and only work on the buses and uh, the trains, and that would mean that they would have to come from somewhere else unless you were able to recruit more guardie, and that would mean that you'd have fewer guardie working on cybercrime or fewer guardie working on the drugs problem or fewer guardie working on uh, child uh, abuse or whatever the case may be. And again, Michael, that is a matter of resourcing and and the department and the minister point towards the increased additional spending. I think it would be... so, So we have a case, Michael, here where there has been trial and error. There are a number of initiatives uh, tried by the transport operators and by Garda Shikon in, in fairness and private security firms to try and address the, the issue of antisocial behaviour and crime on public transport at a time where we, sig- where we want to significantly increase and encourage people onto those services. What I believe what we have tried thus far isn't working. You know, I, I remain to be convinced in relation to that, and, and the, the indications are that it, it, that it isn't working. We believe an, an alternative approach is needed. That will require additional resources. I don't think we should be taking people away from... The Gardaí are already under-resourced. Um, we believe they should be sufficiently resourced, increased resourced, and uh, this additional responsibility. Now, it could very well, Michael, be a case yeah. that you might rotate between uh, divisions, if you like. Um, you know, you might be on on, on traffic police today and on public transport uh, tomorrow, that that would be an operational matter for, for the Gardaí to, to use the resources as best they could. Okay. Uh, while you was, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to uh, ask you uh, about a comment that's coming in uh, and probably would put you on the spot. I, I don't know if you know uh, about the €200 Euro, um, uh, that we're getting off our ESB bills and if it should be subject so, uh, to VAT. Uh, 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 and I'm not sure if you're able to answer this and so maybe we come back to it if not. But just to mention it to you that we've a call from Pat who got their bill uh, 200 euro taken off as was promised by the government but VAT taken off it uh, and uh, they're uh, saying that it worked out at 176 euro 22 off the bill instead of the 200 because of the VAT. Uh, is uh, that something that you'd be aware of? 
Um, my understanding was that it was it was two hundred euro inclusive of of VAT. Um, uh, the, the, the figures. Uh, so, so the minister at the end started talking about two hundred euros plus. You know, so it was mm. in the region of two hundred and thirty euros. I think was the figure he was using. But no, that's certainly something we can we can uh, pursue. I think there are a number of of teething issues that are certainly presenting to to my own office, and I'm sure to other public representatives. Um, in relation to this scheme as it's been been rolled out, but um, I'm happy to yeah. work with yourselves to follow up on that. Well, fair enough. I'm just, and I'm really just reading out uh, what Pat said, uh, and uh, not for, that we doubt Pat for a second, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I was a bit taken aback uh, by the comment, uh, and if, if it's right, uh, certainly at face value, uh, I think Pat is right in saying that that's not what people expected. Exactly. No, I think that's the case. People expected a, a full 200 euros to, to come off their, their bill, and that's certainly at least what the what, what my expectation was as well, based on what I was hearing from, from various ministers in, in recent weeks and months. OK, look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on transport, uh, Darren O'Rourke, who's a TD for Me East. Now, we're going to hear a little bit more of uh, that speech to the United Nations Security Council from Simon Coveney, who, as you know, spent some time in in Ukraine recently and spoke to people there and he's been telling uh, the UN Security Council what Ukrainians told him that they want the rest of the world to do now. During my visit to Ukraine, so many people spoke to me about the urgent need for accountability, to expose the horrors of what has happened to them, preferably in a court of law. In all situations where war crimes may have been committed, We must ensure that timely, credible investigations are undertaken, that evidence is rigorously documented and that witnesses, victims and survivors are supported. And for that reason, Ireland has committed an additional €3 million of funding to the ICC last week. Without accountability and truth, there is no hope for sustainable peace. Not in Ukraine, not anywhere. Madam President, Russia's war has driven millions of Ukrainians from their homes, as we've just heard. Almost 5 million people have become refugees and over 7 million have become displaced internally in Ukraine. But the humanitarian consequences of this war are also felt thousands of miles from Ukraine by some of the most vulnerable people on our planet. Countries across the Middle East and the Horn of Africa, but also in Latin America, are increasingly impacted by the severe economic consequences of this conflict. The price of wheat and oil has risen by 300% in Somalia, where more than 700,000 people are already displaced by drought. Wheat reserves in Palestine could could be depleted in less than three weeks' time. As the UN Security Council, or as, as the UN Security General has said so clearly, the most vulnerable people around the globe cannot become collateral damage in yet another disaster for which they bear no responsibility. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, legislation going before our government uh, today under the Work-Life Balance and Miscellaneous Provision Bill will give parents of children up to the age of 12 and carers the right to take five days of unpaid leave a year to care for people when they become unwell. That's on top of existing entitlements. They'll also have the opportunity to request flexible working arrangements for caring purposes. Maternity leave will be available for transgender men 
men. Uh, breastfeeding uh, will be allowed uh, for a longer period. So currently, uh, people can take time off work for six months in order to breastfeed. Uh, that will now be extended to, to two years. And uh, an amendment to this legislation will follow, uh, which will allow for paid leave for victims of domestic violence. Uh, let's uh, talk to Neil MacDonald, who's uh, the chief executive of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises uh, Association, to try and get some understanding of what this will mean for people in business. Good morning to you, Neil, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, as I understand it, uh, whether uh, you favour this or not, there's not much uh, choice in that. Uh, it's transposing an EU directive into law. Yes, it is. Uh, but, the, <clears throat> of course, the fine detail in the difference between an EU directive and an EU regulation is that a, a directive uh, becomes law in a, in a member state only on foot of local legislation. So, of course, it is, it is very important to us precisely how, how the rights under this directive are enacted locally. And, and, and they will be enacted slightly differently in every jurisdiction in the EU. That's the, the nature of the difference between directives and and, uh, and and regulations, Michael. It's a, it's a point of detail, but it is very important. Okay, but this is how we're approaching it, and it seems as though under this law, uh, when it is enacted, uh, it, it'll uh, result in some very big asks for employers. It will, and <clears throat> I should say that a lot of this is actually happening on the ground already, Michael, because I think one of the one of the outworkings or outflows from the pandemic is that um, you know flexible work arrangements are now part of the negotiated package between prospective employee and employer. So to a certain extent, a, a lot of this is happening already, especially in terms of blended working and partial or, or complete working from home. Um, but of course, this would confer, uh, as you, you've given a, a quick summary of, of some of the issues that would be formalised now in law. And of course, those things do imply cost, uh, difficulty and administration for small business. And for small business in particular, and I, um, well, of course, I do represent small business, so you would expect me to say this, but there, there is a very significant difference between, you know, a large multinational business in social media or financial services where, where someone is out of the workplace on, on leave or illness or, or whatnot, they tend not to be replaced because the, the work is divided among the existing pool. But if you're in a business like running a nursing home or a childcare setting, a, a creche or a cafe or, um, or, or, or a grooming service, uh, hairdressing or barbering, um, you must replace uh, the labour that you've lost due to that illness because if you don't, you're not delivering your service and if you're not delivering your service, you're not, in, uh, you're not earning money. So there is a double whammy effect for small service businesses it, with, with these uh, rights that is, is not present for, for other types of business. Okay, I'm sure it would be very easy for an employee in a creche, uh, as you mentioned a moment ago, uh, to take time off every day so as to breastfeed uh, if their child was in the creche. How does that work uh, in other settings? Uh, because apparently you're able to do that every day uh, for six months as it stands uh, and this is going to be extended to two years. Well, 
one of the beauties of small business is that they, they tend to be able, you know, where, while uh, uh, the great majority of them can't compete uh, with the Facebooks and, mm-hmm. and the Amazons and, and the Netflixes on uh, on package. Because they, they'd have pressures maybe in the office building. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but what they, do, what they do do well is they work flexibly with people. So they are able to say, for example, if they don't have a dedicated room where an employee can go, uh, for example, to mm. breastfeed, they are able to say, well, well look, you, you know, go to the cafe down the street or do something like that. that th- those sorts of flexibilities... Uh, can be built in simply verbally between employer and employee because you're dealing with a, a very uh, flat management structure. Typically, you're dealing mm. with the business owner and the employee and nobody in between. There's no HR function. There's no, uh, you know, company union agreements or stuff like this. This mm. is simply done very flexibly. But when you attempt to apply these templates on a bigger scale and with a legislative footing behind them, they do become significantly more difficult for yeah. business. Well, where have you got the child? <laughs> and uh, if, if the child is in a crash and you're in work and you have to feed the child a, a few times a day, I, I just can't fathom how it works. Well, 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 they are the they are they are the practical difficulties which will you know which will mitigate against people you know getting employment in certain areas. In in mm. reality, for example, in childcare settings, the ratio of children of 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 um, caregivers to children is set by law and it's policed by TUSLA. So you you simply can't have someone uh, that can leave uh, a room full of of eight children and go and do their thing because that's not permitted without a replacement. So there are only two outcomes to that. The, that that childcare facility is not going to hire someone that, that needs to do that or they are going to hire extra labour and they're going to have to charge someone for that. So the cost of doing this does have to be met from somewhere and that they, they're the simple realities that you know the, yeah. the small business community is not knocking the desire to improve yeah. the terms and conditions of employment what we're saying is these things have a cost and there's no point bringing these things in if you don't acknowledge that there is a knock-on cost to them okay and what about five days off a year is that the right balance. I mean, children are going to get sick and uh, somebody's going to have to stay home with them. Uh, But I suppose you'll have questions, always have questions as to whether mam should stay home or dad should stay home. And if both are entitled to five days, that gives 10 days a a year. Uh, Is is that the right balance? Well, I suppose the the issue with that particular one that you're talking about, Michael, is that that, that's one of the areas they're talking about while it's unpaid, it is it, uh, it will also be a no-notice entitlement. So you're entitled to say, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm out here, something's happened. Now, that, that sort of entitlement is extremely difficult for a small business to meet. And don't forget that there's already an existing entitlement to force majeure leave, mm. you know. So is, is this going to be cumulative? Could someone take five days and then say, I want to take my three days force majeure? Um, what we need to do and what we ask government to do with these things because they become extremely complex actually for small businesses to manage all these different entitlements. We ask government to stand back from these and look at these in in a holistic way and say, could, could you actually set out you know, in a, in a single piece of employment legislation or under the Payment of Wages Act or, or whatever, a, a, a single set 
of description of time off or leave because otherwise it becomes extremely difficult to manage and to describe for people. Okay, well, uh, there'll be a, a bit to work through uh, based on uh, what uh, we're seeing uh, about this legislation and uh, I take it uh, people will have to work it out uh, over uh, the coming uh, months and uh, years for that matter. We'll leave it there for the moment, Neil. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us as always. Uh, that's uh, Neil MacDonald who is uh, the CEO of ISME. That's the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Call Michael now. 0419832000 The Michael Reed Show brought to you by Airgrid. Managing and planning the national grid so that everyone has electricity when and where they need it. Eddie Caffrey here, reminding you to join me every Saturday morning for the best in Irish country, Kayleigh and ballads on the green scene from 10am till 1pm. If you have a special request, email it to me now. ecaffrey at lmfm.ie You can send it in by post or to our Facebook page. In association with John Lynch Carpets and Flooring, Effective Square Kells and Mullaboy Industrial Estate Navin for carpets, wooden floors, vinyl rugs and remnants. Expert fitting and complimentary measuring service. See johnlynchcarpets.ie For all those who like being together Let's go to the beach everyone And leave no one behind Should we go get Julie? With seven modular seats There's room for everyone in the all new Dacia Jogger On the road for just €7 per day See for yourself at Newgate Dacia Navin today Bigger, cooler, jogger Terms and conditions apply. Subject to lending criteria. Payments drawn monthly. See Dacia.ie. Hi, Barney here. We are proud to invite you to visit our award-winning Flower Hill Furniture Store here in Navan. You will receive excellent customer service and the best prices in quality furniture in the Northeast. Flower Hill Furniture Navan. For excellent quality and a huge range of bedroom, kitchen, dining and living room furniture, visit flowerhillfurniture.ie. We look forward to seeing you. We all deserve a better work-life balance. But not all of us have the space to work from home. Connected Hubs brings together flexible workspaces across Ireland on one simple website. So you can quickly and easily find a hub in your local area. It's everything you want from an office without the lengthy commute. Meaning you don't have to trade quality of life for quality of workspace. Give yourself space. Visit connectedhubs.ie or download the app to discover a hub near you. Connected Hubs is part of our rural future, a Government of Ireland initiative. Ireland's greatest rock music festival is back, and it's bigger than ever. Saturday, May 28th, Ferry House Racecourse. Rockathon is back. Eight hours of music over two stages, with the best bands in the business paying tribute to Kiss, Foo Fighters, Queen, Iron Maiden, Guns N' Roses, and the mighty ACDC. Rockathon, probably the best festival you will go to this year. Tickets are available at rockathon.ie. Rockathon is regulated by the legends of rock music, not for snowflakes or the faint of heart. Michael at lmfm.ie. The Michael Reed Show with Airgrid, managing and developing the national electricity grid 
so that it's fit for our current needs and ready for our future ones. Now, back to pay and conditions. Uh, there's a, a lot of concern about pay and conditions. There's been a lot of concern about pay and conditions in uh, the Defence Forces for a very long time. And officers in uh, the Defence Forces are very concerned about pay and conditions. Indeed, the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers, or RACO, has voted by 85% in a ballot to join ICTU, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Let's hear a little bit more about this now. Conor King is the General Secretary of the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers, RACO. And a very good morning to you, Conor, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What happens next? Uh, Because you're prohibited by law, are you not, from joining a trade union without the consent of the Minister? That's absolutely correct, Michael. Good morning and thanks for having me on. Um, that's correct. The Defence Amendment Act 1990 states that an association should not be a, a, a member um, or be associated or affiliated with any trade union or any other body without the consent of the minister. And that's the key line as far as we're concerned. And what we're looking at at the moment and what our members have been asked to ballot on and which they've returned with a, a majority of 85% is associate membership with the Irish Congress of Trade Unions. Specifically, to give us a better chance at getting a better deal in national pay negotiations. For the last decade or so, three iterations of pay negotiations have seen Defence Forces members of all ranks completely marginalised and ostracised from process due to our weakened industrial relations status. So all we're trying to do is get a fair go in relation to representing our members properly and therefore enhancing the conditions of service and improving recruitment and retention in the organisation. Okay, uh, and... If permission is given to join a trade union, I take it that's what you'll follow through uh, on foot of uh, the ballot. Uh, But uh, what will happen after that? Uh, Apart uh, from participating in pay talks uh, as members of a a trade union, will you become active members of a a trade union uh, and involve yourselves in protests and demonstrations? Should that be the call of the trade union? That's an excellent question. What's on the table at the moment is associate membership to be distinguished very, very clearly from affiliate membership. So affiliation is full trade union membership with all the freedoms, but also all the, the, the aspects that you've described there. Associate membership is where your unique mandate and your responsibility to the state as a Defence Force member is respected. And all you are doing is being part of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions for the purpose of pay negotiations, nothing more. Okay, on behalf of uh, 1,200 officers, is it? Correct, correct. Right, uh, that's a, a lot of members, uh, and obviously there's a, a lot of disgruntlement amongst your members. There's a lot of frustration, um, I, I won't lie to you. Um, we, we tried everything in relation to getting uh, the message across to government, to the Minister for Defence, to the Department of Defence, and our own military leadership at the senior level, that what's been happening at the moment just isn't working. For decades, we've been trying, particularly the last decade, we've been trying to recruit our way out of what's been known as a retention crisis. So we're losing experience at the middle and at the senior ranks, and we're bringing in people at the, at the, at the junior ranks. Mm. And those people aren't being mentored and supervised, and unfortunately, that is a serious risk to governance. Right. And will this work? Because the greatest tool that a trade union has is its wherewithal to withdraw the labour of uh, the members. Uh, but you've said you won't strike. Yeah. 
we have to try it because at the moment we can't get any worse in relation to what we have currently. At the moment we have something that's known as a conciliation and arbitration scheme and we work with the Department of Defence and military leadership and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. And the onus is on government to make sure that that scheme is strengthened and that it's fully resourced and operational. Um, and that is supposed to compensate for the unique conditions of military service, which you've described, which include not only not being able to take industrial action in furtherance of paying conditions, but also the likes of fitness testing, drug testing, medicals, overseas, military law, unlimited liability, hazardous conditions, um, and no access to the working time directives. Therefore, no access to overtime or, or fair pay for the hours that you work. So they're supposed to resource this. It's supposed to be a workable scheme. And one of the fundamental building blocks of the scheme is the independent adjudicator model. And we have been without an adjudicator for nine months at this point, and we, we didn't have one for six months of 2020. So, unfortunately, they haven't held their end of the bargain up. And where we've been told and promised parity of esteem in pay negotiations, and that the parallel process of associations which aren't affiliated to ICTU would be fairly treated, that just unfortunately hasn't happened. And at this point in time, you know, the definition of insanity to, 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 to absolutely mangle a well-worn cliche mm. is, is to, to do the same thing over and over again and to expect a different result. Okay. We tried three times and mm. we, have, we, have to, we have to try a new approach. Okay, so this is the new approach uh, that you're going to try uh, and uh, you've laid out your stall there. That's uh, the case that you'd be making uh, to, minister, uh, to the minister. What, what, what if Simon Coveney comes back and says no? Yeah, well, we have obviously had to consider that. If he comes back and says no, that's his decision, and we'd have to respect that decision. Uh, we would have to redouble our efforts in the CNA scheme. We would have to go in with a heart and a half into the next round of pay negotiations, knowing that we're going in with both hands tied behind our backs. And we would have to obviously have the conversation with the minister and make sure that he realises that he is making a deliberate decision to deliberately disadvantage Defence Forces personnel, while at the same time saying that we need investment, that we need better conditions of service. So how, how do you square that circle? Okay, we live there for the moment. Connor. thank you indeed for joining us. Connor King is the General Secretary of RACO. That's the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. 